Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. Erin Kafaro is one of the most decorated female rowers in American history. Kafaro was a star rower at Cal from 2001 to 2006, helping the Golden Bears win the NCAA championship in both 2005 and 2006. She helped the United States win the gold medal in the eight boat in both the 2008 Summer Olympics in Beijing and the 2012 Summer Olympics in London. Erin was also a five-time medalist at the World Rowing Championships, including three gold medals. Kafaro is a two-time honoree of the World Rowing Female Crew of the Year and was the 2009 U.S. Rowing Female Athlete of the Year. Kafaro has spent more than a decade coaching in diverse performance communities of athletes, coaches, military, and business professionals. She pivoted into the field of research and psychology in 2018 to dig deeper into health and human behavior and is now a second-year doctoral student in clinical psychology at the Wright Institute in Berkeley. I'm your host, Patty Murphy. Erin, welcome to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast. Thanks so much, Patty. Before we go any further with this conversation, I want to go back to the early stages of your life. Did you know when you were a young girl that you wanted to compete at the highest levels in rowing someday? I did not. <laughs> it was not on the radar. You know, it's one of those in hindsight, it all makes sense, but uh, a little unconventional start. I started with the uh, classical ballet. I started dancing when I was around two, if that's possible. I think I yeah, went from walking to dancing and uh, the only exposure I think I had to like this Olympics thing, you know, my, my family was more so my mom was really into sports. She, you know, avid Giants baseball fan, um, you know, or 49ers football fans. You know, we would watch the Olympics every four years, I think, as, as most people do. But I remember playing this like IBM, like PC Olympic game. And I distinctly remember playing rowing because you had to press the space bar and that was like the strokes. So like every time you press the space bar, you do another stroke. And I remember thinking like, this is so boring. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was far off the radar. But what drew you to rowing eventually? I have to give credit where credit's due. My brother, I had a rad big brother. He let me play with like he and his friends. Like it was, you know, back in the day, grew up in like, small town and everybody would meet out in the, in the street and, and like play, I don't know, you know, home run derby or roller derby or whatever it was. And so he, he would let me come hang and, and play with he and his friends. And he like had one rule and he would like <laughs> repeat it to me every single time. He's like, you can play, but you have to play by our rules. And you know, there's no special like, rules because I was the only girl or anything like that. And I was like, yeah, great. No problem. Fine. Let's go. <laughs> and so, yeah, that kind of laid the foundation, um, I would say for this all of, of just 
I chose a sport. Uh, I chose, you know, well, I actually chose many, I was played many different sports growing up, but, um, ultimately chose a sport that I was not ideal for. like, I was really undersized for it. But again, like those were the rules. And so I just had to play, learn how to like work my way through the system, working with the rules and figure that out. So, yeah. So I guess to come back to that, like started with my brother, just really like kind of supportive. And, you know, he really has been like my biggest support system, even up till now. And so I, was, I lucked out with that. But I, I, you know, played basketball. That was like my second love after dancing. Like I really feel, I still think I love basketball more than I do rowing. <laughs> to be quite oh, wow. It's just, it's such a great game. Like it's so like intense and, you know, like it just, goes back and forth you know you can play both offense and defense and in like one second but I was kind of like mediocre at it you know the the story goes like my dad well both my parents were hoping I would get a scholarship somewhere to go to college and so my dad left a newspaper article on the kitchen counter about this gal one town over who are like basketball rivals she got a scholarship for rowing to I think it was uh, University of San Diego and like now she was looking at going to the Olympic team and you know my little competitive self said well if she can do it I can do it too so I just started calling around different schools and yeah rowing's there still is that like amateur vibe to it where if you haven't done it before it doesn't mean that you can't be great at it later in life, you know, like it, it, again, to the space bar boredom, like it is a very repetitive sport that you can learn somewhat quickly, you know, especially if you have like the background of being athletic. And yeah, I think that's how, how it kind of led to that. That's interesting. And I was going to ask you if, you know, you were a specialist before rowing at Cal, but it seems that you were playing multiple sports and, you know, experienced advantages because of that. Yeah. To that point, like in hindsight, like it all makes sense now, like dancing has rhythm, basketball has, you know, like agility. Um, I also did cross country, which has endurance. So it like, there was a recipe for a rower. I mean, besides, you know, being six foot, uh, 180, (laughs) Like if an athletic background, I think those, all those things really helped kind of lead me to the success in rowing. Awesome. So Erin, you are one of the most decorated female rowers in history and are a two-time gold medalist. In case our listening audience has a limited understanding of the nuances of the sport, like myself, so I'll I'll just (laughs) take that. I'd like to ask a few questions about the fundamentals of rowing. Yeah, absolutely. So just how demanding is the sport physically? Well, I imagine your listeners probably and yourself, I I, I think I saw that you are quite the athlete yourself. So like you are familiar with pain, right? Like and and it's you know, it's an endurance sport. That's the name of the game and, and I think that's the difference between a contact sport or a contact athlete versus an endurance athlete is you're actually putting pain on yourself (laughs) where it's like it almost makes more sense in contact sport like somebody you have to like you know bear bear the pain that somebody else you know puts on you but yeah there's this like uh, I don't know uh masochistic like 
yeah, side to to any any endurance sport, right? Where you're just like, oh, that's pain. Okay, I'm going to keep going towards it. So that yeah, that's kind of like rowing in a nutshell. But I think w- what's wonderful about rowing that separates it from you know something you know like running or I actually think cycling kind of gets in and fall into this category too, but there's such a tight feedback loop. We do a lot of our training on the concept two ergometers. Have you ever been on one of those, the indoor rowers? Oh yeah. 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 So you probably, you know, for better, or for worse, it gives you your score or your, you know, a number every single stroke. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think for those that have like compulsive tendencies, uh, kind of like myself, it is just such a satisfying thing to, yeah, it's just tight feedback loop where it's like, yes, that was good. No, no. Yes. You know, like you can make like micro corrections really quickly. Actually, that that's what really kind of kept me in this. Well, no, I think that's what drew me to the sport. It definitely didn't keep me in it. But yeah, (laughs) drew me drew me to it because it, it, there is satisfying. Like you get a little dopamine hit, you know, every time that you, you do like, and it's, and it's not very often, right? Like probably like when you're running, you're not feeling great, you know, for the whole time. (laughs) Well, yeah, I, I have experienced not only just running, but running ultra marathons and the way, you know, you have to look at it when you're running such a long distance. In my mind, I, I tell myself if it's not bleeding profusely or broken, I'm just tired and I just have to figure out a way to keep moving forward. And it's interesting that, you know, sometimes people say, oh, I can't run. But when I'm running, I think of what I can do. I can take a deeper breath. I can make this tweak. I can lift my legs higher. Um, so that leads us to our next question, which is what are the mental demands of the sport of rowing? Yeah. And that's just so fascinating. Like if I'm not broken or bleeding, I can still keep going, which I mean, hopefully we can get into a little bit later. Cause I think the, uh, I don't know, the psychology, you know, mind of, of mine is just going off with that but yeah I I think that to kind of loop it in like that's kind of what why I was drawn to get into psychology I think that there are so many things that get us through this like immediate I don't know immediate pain um I don't want to call it a, a, a trauma necessarily you know like with a little t but there but it somewhat it kind of is like this immediate like your system is telling you to pay attention, right? Like something, something's up, like something's not right. Like, you know, if you're running an ultra marathon, like your system will probably often be like, what are you doing? Like, why, like, what are you running away from? Like, what's going on here? And so those, like those signals to say like, hey, stop are actually quite, normal. And I am, I'm just so interested, like, and, and I hear like, this is kind of what I got good at is overriding those signals, but like at what cost, right. And, and can we, is that adaptive in the long run? Like if we held, hold, hold on to that too rigidly in all situations of like, Oh, this is pain. I'm familiar with it. Great. Let's just keep pushing. Like, I'm just going to override this signal. 
I don't know if you can hear my voice. I like get really excited about this because I think this is where like the nuance of sport versus, you know, civilian life is, is just, it's so separate and like how it gets merged is where I think a lot of us, you know, including myself get in trouble. You know, we're talking about this kind of at that individual level, but can you explore team dynamics when it comes to rowing? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's another topic I find fascinating. Like I remember training, I think it was for the 2008 Olympics and, you know, my family, I was like fortunate. We had tough family vacations. We would go to Hawaii every year, but I could not find a damn rowing machine. Like there wasn't a machine anywhere, but we had to do these tests um, over a break to make sure that I think, you know, we're all staying fit or whatnot. So I flew out to another island to do a test on my own. That was it was a 6,000 meter test, which is like a common, at least for on the US on the US team, like it's a pretty common distance to test. And then I remember every damn stroke and it was so painful. And I was like, I got an awful score. And I just remember being like, I am, I'm out of shape. I don't like I shouldn't be here. Like, why am I even on the team? And then the next week, the team got back together and we did the same, same test, um, you know, sitting side by side. You're not like on the same machine, but you still have, you're in this room with your team. I just, you know, crushed my PR. And I, at that point, I was like, okay, something's going, like, there's something here with this like team. Um, like energy and dynamics. Yeah. It's like, it's you doing your own score. Your it's your own output. There is something that is so tangible, but like intangible when you're with a team. I don't know. I, I love the, the work that Sebastian Younger, um, yeah. doing. I listened, I listened to both of, or the podcast that you had and then the follow-up you had with mm-hmm. him. I think he's he's absolutely onto something about, you know, community and, and you know, the divisive community that, that we're in right now and how difficult that is to come back to. Um, I, I, I think team is, is super important, but I also, I guess what I'm kind of like swishing around in my head is like, does your individual development somewhat get hindered when you are fused with a team hindered Uh, like yeah just uh does your own like ego development and in some way because you are now part of a system right like you don't Mm -hmm. have to be everything and that's that's the beauty of the team but then when you come back into this really like individualistic society that we're in and in the u.s at least like is that maybe what another reason why it's so hard that you like, yeah, you, there's part of like your ego development that you didn't ha- necessarily have to develop. Again, this is, this is all just conjecture, but this is absolutely where my mind goes with, I think that that's why that, that might be why I don't think that's why, but it might be part of the reason why it's so hard to come back and to like integrate, you know, after retirement from, um, right. you know, working with fire or, or military or even like on sports teams, because you had this like really attentive system of a mm-hmm. team 
that you were in and now it's all on you. I, that's a, some food for thought. Yeah. Again, this is uh, <laughs> where I, I can go off on. on <laughs> Maybe this is why I, I've actually found the right profession for myself. I have, I have too many questions and not, not enough answers. <laughs> well, I have more questions for you. So before okay. we digress any further, <laughs> I wanted to transition to asking you a little bit more about um, your professional career. And I assume that having, you know, a highly successful collegiate career at one of the premier schools for rowing gave you a competitive edge in making the Olympic team. And I'm guessing you were in a hyper competitive field surrounded by talented athletes. So what was the transition from collegiate to Olympic and professional status like for you? Yeah, no, I I think it, you kind of hit the nail on the head. Like it really was, I almost want to say it's, it's, somewhat just dumb luck. Like, I think there has to be skill, but there's like this luck that I joined. I walked onto this team at, you know, Cal Berkeley that just happened to be, have this great coach, Dave O'Neill, that happened to have another gal that was like kind of my size, who was feisty and already like working her way through the system. And that happened to have just like this great team. You know, I could have walked on anywhere else. And, and I think you know, wouldn't have been exposed to all these lessons that I, I, I just drew upon um, time and time again to get myself to this, I guess, what we would call like elite level of rowing. I always feel weird using that word elite because it sounds really, I don't know, snobby, but <laughs> exclusive. But it's, I suppose, you know, there are fewer people that, that make it to that level I don't know if they're actually smarter than the rest of us or not, but yeah. So I, the transition, you know, I think was, was somewhat smooth because I was on this like competitive team in college and my mentor, you know, she was on the U S team when I got there. So Megan cook and, um, she's awesome. She's coaching. She's the head coach at Duke now, but she just had this, and she would still like when I joined the team, take me out on these extra rows. Like you don't have like we're all tired. Like we're, you know, we already worked out like six to eight hours that day. And so to do like an extra row is just above and beyond. But, you know, as a young whippersnapper, I was like, I don't get it. Like I need I need help. But she was such like this wonderful coach in the boat. I would be like remiss not to mention the U.S. coaches, especially like the coach Tom Terhar is just like, I think he's the definition, like, a, you know, like all the Ryan Halliday stuff of like stoicism, like Tom Terhar, my, the U.S. women's team coach is like, he is absolutely stoic. He would only give words when they were needed and they would be very concise and clear. And I just, yeah, I just really appreciated that coaching style. And it was also counterbalanced with a very warm and like intent. I don't know. If, yeah, I guess those two can go together. Warm and intense, like group of women on the U.S. team that um, we just we, we did a lot of like coaching of each other and supporting of each other, too. So it was a it was a great environment that. I mean, to be quite honest, it was kind of hard not to do well. Awesome. 
you encourage rowers to incorporate new ideas and training techniques into their training to make a positive impact on the sport of rowing for the future. And obviously, based on this conversation, I can tell you're a very curious athlete and open to new ideas. So what is the most unconventional idea or technique that you've tried? <laughs> you know, like the thing that comes to mind is actually, ironically, something I'm doing with one of my clients right now. And I don't really know where it's going to end up. There's this old um, training book called Red Gold. It was by this, you know, Soviet psychologist. And it actually is, I don't know, unpublished, but basically it's like you can only get it on eBay and it's off the shelves um, because it was like the secrets of the Soviet, you know, Soviets when they were just dominating in all the sports. And so I was like, I absolutely just thought this book was the Bible. And there's some there's some nutty stuff, things in there that they used to do with their athletes. And one of them was to do it was to practice like an act of basically I think the, the gist of it is to practice action, even if there's no reason behind it. So I would put a empty water bottle in the cupboard in the morning and then take it out at night. <laughs> and it was just it was just, it was something that was absolutely meaningless. I mean, as, as I kind of understand it now, in like psychological terms, it's like behavioral activation in a way of like, you know, understanding can only get you so far, right? Like as far as like, even, you know, with our own habits and whatnot, whatnot, we can understand, you know, why we're doing it, but that's not going to make us actually change our habits. And so the next step is to practice this like active will. It was my exercise to increase my willpower, which is also, you know, I don't, yeah, don't know if that's actually possible or not, but I wanted to play with it. So to um, practice my willpower muscle, I would do that. And I've actually uh, shared that with one of my clients, but I will see where it goes. That's absolutely fascinating. And especially right now, for me, I am in a position where I work remotely. So home is work and work is home and creating boundaries is like, you know, and, and exercising discipline is yeah. a big challenge these days. And I love that. I might take that and, and use it. Yes. Yeah. Because we, even in the best of circumstances, right? Like when we're like, makes sense to get up and exercise. <laughs> it can right. make sense like for like immediate, you know, how you feel, how you look. And then in the long term, like, why wouldn't we do that? You know? And, and again, like you can understand why or why not, but like at, at some point it's just doing it. Right. Absolutely. I'm going to use one of your favorite words, elite. Um, you've worked with a considerable number of elite pro athletes and college athletes and coaches. So what are some of the traits of individuals that you have found to be universal to optimal performers? You know, it's really hard to distill it down. And I think this is kind of like where, where I'm so cur curious about, like, you know, what kind of feeds this mental toughness, because I want to say it's like openness and willingness to learn, right? Like this, the idea of growth mindset. Oh, wonderful uh, researcher. She's at Stanford now, Carol Dweck. Yeah. So this like growth mindset that that was like her research is that 
everybody who was successful had this open growth mindset. And I really want to believe that, but I've actually seen, you know, and, and to be quite candid, like with myself, like I, I think at times I'm not quite open, but I still succeeded. So there, there has to be this drive, like, right. There has to be this like mental toughness, grit, what other words does it go under like this resilience? And, and again, like these are really like soft words and like use and these, the words are used so like freely, but they're really hard to define. I, I think sometimes, you know, as a coach, I remember being referred to as like the X factor, right? Like it's, it's this athlete that you get that, um, you don't have to motivate, like they already come in and you almost have to like put the brakes on them. I think that there is that, but what feeds it? I don't know. I think it it can be many things. And that's kind of what I want to like look at a little bit deeper in research, because I I think it it can't just be distilled down to like courage, like, or lack of fear. Like, I think both those things can fuel this drive, right? Like you can be scared shitless and that, that will get you really far. Right. I don't know. I think of this, like with the you know, endurance, like the ultra endurance community, you know, as I had a partner who was in there and I guess they have this saying of like, what are you running from or or running to, you know? Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think that uh, I, sorry, I don't have any simple answers. (laughs) Well, I, I appreciate that perspective. It's a little complicated and I'm looking at my bookshelf right now and there's a book on there. How bad do you want it by Matt Fitzgerald? I think. Yeah. And it's a collection of stories of basically endurance athletes and how they overcame adversity and performed. It's one of my favorite books. And I often ask myself that and other, you know, fellow endurance athletes, like, you know, how bad do you want it? And as I was preparing for this interview, I was thinking of asking you that question, like how bad do you have to want it to be a gold medalist? Like what is in there? What is in there? Gosh, do we have enough time to unpack this? (laughs) It's a whole other podcast. (laughs) Um, You know, there's this athlete that I was coaching that like, I think along the same lines, and I like the way she phrased it. She's like, it can't be a want. Like, it has to be a need. Hmm. And I think that really, it's actually a really scary place to be in because it, you become so, at least for me, I became like so singular focused and was really unaware and filtered out like a lot of other things that were going on around me. Um, so that's actually a really dangerous place to be in if you think about it, like to not be aware of your surroundings. But like that's at least that was my journey. Like I was just very, yeah, laser focused. And again, like I think it that's really celebrated in our culture. You know, this kind of like obsessiveness is actually celebrated. You know, I was able to achieve this like great feat of like human physiology, if you will. And, and, and I suppose like psychology in a way, but like, there's a big cost to it. There was a big cost that I think I'm still trying to wrap my head around. 
it's starting to like be touched on more and more, especially with athletes. You know, Michael Phelps put out the Weight of Gold documentary, which, you know, full disclosure, I, I have not seen. I, I feel like I'm, I don't think I'm ready for the emotions quite yet. There's a lot of athletes that have come out and talked about this transition being so difficult. And it is eerily like, you know, I, I think some other team oriented um, professions as well, like the military, fire, police. It feels so good to have like this meaning and purpose and laser focus. And you do achieve something great. There is this like wonderful thing you're able to do together. But then at what cost? Like that you, once you become more aware of what, what was happening around you and or like what is still happening around you. It's, it's actually like if you aren't depressed about what's happening around us right now, like I don't know. I don't know what you're looking at. But like, yeah, in a way, like there's a lot like you have to like you have to shield yourself from a lot in order to achieve something great. I am sharing way too much about myself during this interview. This is the last Please. time I'm going to overshare. No, I want to. <laughs> one of the mantras you know, I've kind of adopted in, in racing is, uh, it's okay to feel your feelings, like feel your feelings, but then put them in a box and put them away. Like, you know, in that moment you have to compartmentalize, like be aware, be self-aware, but then throw it out the window, react now, freak out later. Like out of curiosity and, and feel free, like, if you don't want to answer this, so I've lost control of the interview folks. No, no, I, (laughs) I, do you ever take that box out? Like where, where is that box? You know where it is? Like, do you ever open it back up? Sure do. (laughs) Around, around the people that I trust and that can appreciate what I'm saying. So those who have similar experiences and where I feel safe. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. That is, that sounds so well adjusted. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't, I didn't have that. Like I didn't have that skill, if you will, or like the foresight. Like I think I, I had a similar box and I, I didn't open it until it became so full that it, it opened itself. Right. Definitely. That's part of the experience. I'm definitely leaving out details and timeline, but eventually, yes, I got to the place where you're like processing them more. Yeah. 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 And in a little bit of of a way, like I've been lucky in that I've had support systems wherever I've been that, you know, created a challenge. Yeah. And you know what? Like I think in a, in a way, like it's, humans working by design wonderfully like that it is such an adaptive thing that we can put pain away if you will for the moment um i don't know if you get if you've ever read the book dune but that's like the test like can you put your hand in the box and and not react like that's the human test i just find that that's so fascinating that like yeah that we can we can do that and also like do we ever give ourselves the time or and or like where is the time to open that box back up because it's you know a lot of times it's not in the moment yeah great that that put it away you know <laughs> perform right now and then like if you don't have a place to like process it will it will find you <laughs> Yeah, I think that outside of my 
experience with that in sport. It probably was developed when I was a reporter. So being in the field, reporting to things in real time and having to try to be that fourth wall, you know, just try to be objective is where I think personally that was sort of trained. And I know that you have had exposure to tactical athletes in the military and the FDNY. And that's where I think I'm drawing the parallel right now to what my train of thought is, you know, industries that are actively adopting human performance, best practices from sport at this time. So are there any practices that you've been exposed to in tactical industries that you think might have value in improving performance in sport? Yeah. I like what you did there. I, I, um, I appreciate that. Like there are so many parallels to all of this and I, and I hadn't even thought about that, about like reporting, but that makes so much sense. Like you have to like almost have your game face on, you know, I'm like at this weird place of like, I am like really hesitant to share how I got to where I was because I don't think it was the healthiest way. (laughs) You know, like, I don't know. I think there's some things that I can share. Like sleep was non-negotiable. Like that's just basic. Like I actually think that's even more important than nutrition. Like if you aren't sleeping, like then everything else, like it's really hard to work on. Yeah. That's just a baseline thing. And, um, I think that thankfully from what I'm hearing, especially with like all the good work you guys are doing, you know, with leadership under fire and there's another group, I think maybe you guys have done work together, the mission critical team Institute. Um, I was actually just speaking about them, like not long before this interview. <laughs> uh, I, I have yet to meet Dr. President Klein, but I, I know, you know, Coleman pretty well. They're doing such great work and like getting this information out of like, Hey, we got to sleep. Like it's no longer a cool thing to say. Like I only am operating on like one to two hours of sleep where we all got off on thinking that was like a badge on our, you know, shoulder. Like, I don't know because I, yeah, even to this day, like in graduate school, I still have friends that are like, Oh, I just like stayed up all night doing this write up. And I was like, no, like my brain shuts down. Like I just, I'm done. Like, Sleep is, I think, the the most non-negotiable factor of, of performance. And then I think you can you play with nutrition. I think that has its own rabbit hole that I went on that train hard. <laughs> like I did every single every single diet and and wanted you know tweaked every single thing. And I was very opinionated about all of them, and it was contradictory at times. And but I think the thing, the other thing that really helped me kind of perform, if you will, was doing something slightly different than everybody else. Like for me at the time, it was, um, lifting heavy weights. Like all of my teammates were just adding on more and more mileage and, you know, they were, I mean, let's be honest. They were just like God's gift to, uh, physiology. They were just things like six foot plus like 180 goddesses that were just like already had physiology that were like was through the roof and they were just like getting fitter and fitter so I was like I can't play that game like (laughs) there's no way in hell I'm gonna like be able to like play with your like dinosaur lungs and like whale heart 
So uh, I'm going to just get really good at like learning how to use my body weight and uh, lift things. So I actually started doing like, yeah, kind of gymnastics type movements, like pull-ups, handstands, just like learning how to put my body in space and how to use it more effectively. You know, lo and behold, I think that concept is actually starting to grab on in the rowing world now that it's not just like harder, harder. Like, I think that's the worst, like, GQ ever is like harder or more. Mm, Um, But yeah, yeah. so to go back to your, sorry, I, I digress, but I think it's find one thing that you can kind of like hold on to. Like for me, when I was on the starting line, I was like, I mean, these girls can't deadlift 300, you know, like I got that. So I got that going for me, which is nice, you know, or they can't do like however many pull-ups. So, um, it was just something like, it's just like a little thing that, um, it was almost like my almost like side experiment too, of like, what's going to make me a little bit, what can I tweak? You know, definitely goes, doesn't go well. So yeah. You know, I would love to explore the themes of biometrics and recovery. They're arguably interconnected. And I'd love to explore your philosophy on both as an athlete and a coach. So did you incorporate biometrics into your training? Yeah, we did. We um, It went through waves, <laughs> as I explained, uh, good old Tommy T, my U.S. coach. He uh, would go through waves of this, of like wanting all the data and then say like paralysis by analysis and just like totally like throw all the data out and just be like, no, I'm just going to go off of what I know. Um, but the thing that um, really, and I think maybe, I don't know, maybe you can chime in on this, but like, it's just an endurance athlete thing to do heart rate. So we did a lot of heart rate work, which as I started coaching, I realized like it's somewhat useful to like give you like this gauge of where you are, but it's also not because it has to have like some other point to like triangulate off of, right? Like I, I and I wouldn't do heart rate on like tests or, you know, resting heart rate. I would not take any biometrics like leading up to like that week. And especially on the day of, because I'm like, at this point, like, I don't want to know, but I bet it was like, it, it wasn't ideal, right? Like I, it was what it was, but it was time for reform. So I was like, I'm not going to be able to, yeah, I don't want to get in my head about these numbers. And so I definitely think that biometrics can be useful in training to kind of, again, give that feedback loop of like, mm-hmm. am I going in the right direction or not? But I see... Yeah, it's just this trend going towards, again, this like obsessiveness with the numbers and not feeling that really scared me. I think um, there's a book, Irresistible, that's out right now. I just started getting into he's touching on that as well of like how much we depend on these numbers to tell us how we feel. That's just dangerous. I think especially because there's so much in between a good recovery score or not. Like you can have a good recovery score, but also be feeling like emotionally, like really fucking pissed or shitty, you know, like, and so I, I just, I think the more you can do it to train and correlate that to how you feel the better. And then also when it's time to perform, like let it go, (laughs) like it's Mm -hmm. just let it go. So 
I know that there, there's a lot of great science out there. I don't want to minimize that by any means. Are we learning from it? Or are we depending on the device? That is a very good question that I don't have the answer to. Yeah. But it's a good question to pose. And we've been touching on the emotional experience of sport. You know, the Leadership Under Fire team aspires to have highly accomplished individuals on our podcast who've demonstrated themselves to be optimal performers in ultra competitive settings. But you are our first Olympian, not just an Olympian, but a two-time gold medalist. So I have to ask you, how did it feel to medal in the Olympics? First of all, that's surprising. <laughs> yeah, I was listening to like Lawrence Gonzalez the other day on the podcast and like younger and like you guys have so like that is surprise. I'm honored uh, and surprised. And you won't be the last. How about we'll say that you're the first, but you yeah, won't be the last. <laughs> I know exactly. I'm like, well, we got to get more. I mean, maybe there's a reason we're, we're all a little, we're all a little nutty. Let's be honest. What is it like to stand on the podium? And I sometimes hesitate to share this story because it is so like personal and individual. You know, I remember, and there's even like some really like vivid images like captured of this I remember like the first medal like so let me back up like I was in the bow of the boat which means like the very end of the boat so I was the first one to cross the line yeah there's just like this disbelief and I think when I was still in the boat there's like this like Actually, I don't know if I got there yet, but for the most part, it was like this disbelief. And I remember seeing every, all of my teammates in front of me. So there was eight girls ahead of me, like celebrating. And I was like, oh, I guess I should celebrate. Like <laughs> I literally had to watch them to get a cue of what to do because it was like, wait, what? Like I just did all of that and now it's over. <laughs> and like, it was like, holy shit. <laughs> And so, yeah, there was like, uh, there was this like, you know, appropriate celebration and excitement for rowing. It's kind of weird. Like, so once you finish, you, we like paddle over to the awards dock. You can only really like touch the person in front or behind when you're in the boat to like celebrate. And once you get to the dock, we all just kind of like embraced. And that was when I really felt it. Like when I could really like, we all kind of like hugged each other. And that was when I was like, it really kind of rushed over me of like this, like immense, like, I don't know. And I think it kind of goes back to that, like being in the room and doing that 6k test with them again. Like I felt their energy and like, it was like, okay, it was just this extreme high. But then, you know, as we walk over to the awards podium, there's all media and whatnot. It takes a while. And so like, I, I went through this like rainbow of emotions and actually on the award podium, like as we were hearing the national anthem, I had this like immense sadness. You know, I, I feel more comfortable like sharing it now, but you know, I definitely don't share this as maybe I should, but I don't share it as much. Like when I talk to like elementary school kids, because like people, like they already have an idea of what they want to hear. Right. Like they want you to say it was the best thing ever. It was ecstatic. You should do it, go for it, you know, live your dreams. But for me, like, I, I just feel like that 
from my experience, like that's almost irresponsible because I'm like, it wasn't all good. It was actually like, as I was listening to this national anthem, like I remember looking over at my teammates who were like smiling and like tearing. Um, I think from what I've like gathered with conversations with them, like out of joy, but I was sobbing out of sadness and like, I already started feeling loss at that point, which I was like, Oh shit, there's something wrong with me. Like I, how can I already be sad about something that like, I just did like, it, it's still here. Like I'm in this moment hearing the national anthem, like it, how more picturesque can it be of like a childhood dream? And I'm sad. And it was, um, you know, at that point, like I was like, okay, then maybe I need, I did it wrong. So I need to do it again. <laughs> so I went back. I mean, there's many other reasons, let's be honest, but like, I literally thought I did it wrong. And so, but yep. And, you know, I guess this is like, I don't know, the universe is like sixth sense of humor, but I won again. <laughs> there I was on the podium again. And so freaking sad. And I was like, at that point, I was like, okay, there's something else going on. Like, I, I don't, I, I think I, I'm like chasing something that is, and thinking that like winning and the success is going to like, give me some sense of like ultimate meaning or happiness. And it really isn't. That's, that's a hard realization, right? Cause isn't it like the, if this, then I'll be happy scenario. And then you get to where you said you wanted to be. And that moment, you know, goes by and, and yeah. you're not li- living that. Um, that's a hard lesson. Yeah. And, and I, you know, you brought up Sebastian Younger earlier and it's all coming together now. And I want to ask you like, how difficult was the transition you know, going from being this Olympian, what what did you learn about yourself when you transitioned back to, you know, normal life? I think I'm still learning. And I do want to like acknowledge though, that like how fortunate I was to have the experience to, to have like, to achieve something, not just once, but twice and realize that that's not it. I think Jim Carrey said something to that effect of like, I just wish everybody would be successful to know that that's not what, what it's all about. Yeah. I think this transition, I think it's so complicated. I'm so drawn to Younger's hypothesis about the tribe and the community aspect. I think that is from what I understand and what I've like anecdotally felt like it absolutely one of the parts of it. The other part that I had, I had this great psychiatrist. He was a resident over at Stanford. I was doing, um, I was working on a research project over there. So I got access to their health system and just like some of the, you know, most wonderful and brilliant people I, I've, I've really met. And, um, you know, he, he specialized. So I only wanted to go to a sports psychologist after I was like, nobody will know what I'm talking about. Like this is, I'm just, elite. <laughs> this is, this is a special problem. And, and to be honest, I was quite, I like, and I sometimes am still quite embarrassed of like, I got everything I asked for and I'm still like, I'm actually quite sad about it, you know? And he 
kind of reframed it for me in that like, it's not a special problem. Like you got to go through a period of your life where you were just like intensely focused on, again, specializing, laser focused on one thing. And there's a lot of other parts of you before that and are coming after that are hard and, you know, maybe that you miss during, but that are really hard to process. And so what is happening right now is not necessarily just about the transition. Like it's about you coming back to touch with like reality and like how hard it is to be a human. You know, there's a lot of things that I did not, again, to kind of go to that, like, what are you running away from? Um, or two, like there's that fueled me. Like there's a lot of things that I was avoiding thinking about, you know, to be honest, like the physical pain was far less painful than that. So I had to kind of come to grips with a lot of this like psychological pain. I think as an athlete, like you're in this very cultured, catered environment that's quite different from like the serve, you know, being in the fire and military where you are, yeah, you're, you're in the line of fire, right? Like you have, there's a lot of other complicated things that, that can really add on to who you were before, during and after that can really like affect how you transition out and what your reality is. Yeah. I I just think that no matter what, like coming into contact with like self-awareness is a brutal, brutal, but like wonderful journey. (laughs) I think that's, that's the transition for me. Like I I can summarize it into like, I just started becoming self-aware. Brutal and wonderful. Those are two excellent (laughs) words. So Erin, you presently are a full-time student once again, currently pursuing a doctorate in psychology at the Wright Institute at Berkeley. What was the impetus for you to pursue your doctorate in psychology? And what would you like to do once you complete your doctorate? Yeah, I I wish I need need to work on my elevator pitch on this. Um, There's so many reasons like I went in. I I think, um, yeah, everything I've stated before, I, I just think that humans are just so complex. And I just am, am so drawn to the complexity of every single human, whether, you know, like in isolation, whether it's an an individual or even in group dynamics, I think it's intimidating and maddening because there is no no, like formula. And I think, you know, was to say that I was really good at something. I think I'm really good at really good at dealing with pain. (laughs) And so And I actually find pain more interesting than happiness, which doesn't mean that I don't think happiness is great or pleasure is great. But I I actually find that some of the more unique things about humans, I I think, come with the pain. And with that, like, I became, you know, fortunately really good at dealing with my own pain and a lot of, you know, well, okay. I got really good at dealing with physical pain, <laughs> emotional pain. I'm still working on that, but I also have realized that like, I really want to do that for other people. Like just sit with them with their pain. And like, and it's such a, 
you know, some, with my, a lot of my classmates, we like oftentimes are like, what are we doing? Like, this, this is, this is so hard. It's so like to sit with somebody in their sadness and, and hear these stories of like, yeah, humanity just doing brutal things to other people. Like, it's just, it's, it's heavy to hold on to. And I imagine like a lot of your listeners probably can resonate with this of actually seeing it and experiencing, or even just sitting around, you know, like the the kitchen table and hearing about it again, like, it's just awful to hear what like other humans can do to humans, you know, and, and what has happened. And to like, see this process of like, working, and still taking the next step forward, like working through it and still going forward anyhow. I think that's, that's satisfaction. Like that's pleasure to me to see somebody go from like, hold, being able to hold immense pain at the same time as moving forward to just think about like happiness and positivity is to ignore like some of the most like wonderful details of life. Awesome. So you've also worked as a research coordinator at Stanford's Department of Neurobiology, more specifically, the Huberman Lab. So what exactly is the Huberman Lab? Yeah, so Huberman has become quite the um, celebrity. Andrew Huberman is a professor of neurobiology and I think um, ophthalmology as well at Stanford. Interesting dude. Um, he, he's been on the Rogan podcast, Whitney Cummings, like he's kind of making the, the comedian circuit, which also, I mean, you just have to listen to it. It makes sense. He actually has a, he has a wonderful kind of like temperament and sense of humor, but this like amazing way of like taking really complex concepts, neurobiology, like what? <laughs> Where do we even begin? We don't even know, like, and that's the thing about neurobiology. Like, there's so much we don't know. And, but just distilling it down into, like, really, like, bite-sized, like, oh, I can actually, like, I actually kind of understand that concepts. And so, yeah, he's also, like, on Instagram. I think it's at Huberman Lab. It's interesting, like, what he's doing with his work. You know, like, being in the in the research world was, was something else. Like, I, I'm actually more, like, in the clinical side now. But, you know, he is the one, as a PI, like, one that runs the lab. For the most part, like, I mean, you're the CEO, like you have to make sure the money's coming in, you have to balance the books, you have to like, write all these grants, and then you get a bunch of postdocs, and hopefully like really, you know, smart PhD students that are coming in and writing papers that you're supervising, right? So there's very little science that happens when you're the head of a lab, at least from my understanding, but you've, you've already been there, like he already is, he's been published quite a bit. And so with the human lab, what they do is like, one, they're trying to cure glaucoma, <laughs> just in, you know, but it's really, it's really wonderful work that he has some of the postdocs like, yeah, looking into how to get eyesight back, right, and, and or maintain it. And then the other side is um, looking at visually evoked emotions, basically. And so um, the the project that I was on was by this just this brilliant um, researcher, Melise Yomaz Baban, and she she only did animal models before. A lot of neurobiology is like animals, flies, and all this stuff. And so she had this like really novel 
paradigm that she set up with mice to like measure their biometrics, if you will, uh, of fear. And so then she wanted to do it in humans. They got this grant, they built out this virtual reality um, setting to do a similar paradigm with humans. And yeah, the study just got published in current biology. And basically what she found is that people with what's called the high like trait anxiety, kind of known as like generalized anxiety um, disorder, they display this like increased visual scanning. So there's on the um, virtual reality, you get set up to walk across this like heights. So you would be like on one side and it would be a plank to walk to the other side. But um, yeah, people with generalized anxiety would scan more with their eyes before walking across. So when it's like there's this sign of like visual threat or danger, there's more visual scanning. And yeah, I can't even begin to, to guess where this will go for treatment for people who have generalized anxiety and or PTSD. So anyhow, check it out. If That's you, you so cool. That's so cool. Based on your experience, what is something that, you know, you think we don't know yet about human performance under stress that we might come to know in the years to come? I don't know if I, I am in a position to, to bite that one off. Like, I feel like I'm such like a learning phase right now. I think I would, I would definitely am humbling myself in that. Like, I don't know what we don't know. <laughs> I have hopes. I have hopes that we like can realize the importance of like integrating more emotion processing, not real time, but like after, like you're saying, like open up that box and like emotions are actually needed for performance that they shouldn't be numbed. I have hopes that that, not that this transition will be any easier. I think that's part of it. Like, I think there has to be like this threshold or this difficulty, but that will have better guidance for people going through this transition, whether it's going from, you know, being a fireman to a civilian or a policeman to a civilian or military or athletes. Like I, I I think it's going to be hard. And I, maybe it's just like this hope that we're just more honest about it, like how hard it is and that we can have, you know, to Younger's point, like have more of a community that we can just sit with each other through through the pain. That's my hope. I think that's a perfect place to end this conversation. Erin, thank you so much for taking so much time to speak with me today. I wish we could talk for longer. Um, Thank you very much for all of your insight. Yeah, thank you guys for having me on. Thank you, Patty. I I appreciate what you're doing and what um, Leadership Under Fire is doing. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.